Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, we are in all Manhattan discussion as New York emerges from the pandemic. While the caseloads are still high, Manhattan is coming back. Broadway shows are back. And the energy is back. But there's still more work to be done. I'll be speaking with Mark Levine, the Manhattan Borough President about the last two years and the way forward. From the subway system, to affordable housing, to solving the age-old argument as to who has the best bagels. Then I'll sit down with David Rockwell, the legendary architect on everything from hotel design to what's wrong with restaurant seating, to how New Yorkers continue to live their lives vertically. And then, a look at history through a New York library you probably haven't heard about. It's at the New York Historical Society. First up, Manhattan Borough President, Mark Levine. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Mr. President, thanks for joining us. It's an honor to be here, Peter. Thank you. And uh, you're a West Side guy, aren't you? Well, I'm from Washington Heights, which is <laughs> way uptown. I know it. <laughs> but uh, it is uh, one of the most fascinating parts of Manhattan, which I encourage everyone to visit. 
They have great neighborhoods all over the borough, which I'm sure we'll talk about. We are. Uh, one little statistic I'm going to give you, which may, you may not know about, but and we talk more than just Manhattan, but New York City itself, more people live in New York City than in 40 of the 50 states. How about that? Look, if uh, Manhattan never declares statehood and gets two statehood, it gets two senators, we're still going to be three times the size of Wyoming. <laughs> and I'll, I'll quote you when that happens. Uh, but you're, listen, I'm, I'm a Manhattan born and raised guy. I'm a public school, uh, you know, I'm a product of the public school system. I went to, uh, I went to public school both in Manhattan and the Bronx. Uh, you're a Washington Heights guy, which is not that far from the Bronx. Um, what's changed now? Because we're, you know, we're coming from the Civilian Hotel, a relatively new hotel in the Broadway area. Uh, I went to, I actually went to a Broadway musical the other night. And it was the first time I actually went out to Broadway in over two years actually two and a half years, I might say. And uh, the energy was great. The people were on the streets. The traffic was jammed. I mean, people were really happy to be back. I'm sure that really uh, is a good news for you as well. It really is. You know, this has been such a tough two, almost two and a half years, uh, not just for New York City, but specifically for Manhattan. But I got to say, the signs of our comeback are everywhere. Most of the Broadway houses are now open again. And ticket sales are incredibly strong. There's amazing shows that you can see right now. But it's not just Broadway. Restaurants are coming back. Tourists are starting to come back. And you really feel it in the streets. You stroll around neighborhoods like the West Village, like Washington Heights, like Tribeca. You see it in Harlem. You see it on the Upper West Side, on the Lower East Side. Each neighborhood, a whole world of opportunities, of cultural destinations. Um, I think this is a great time to visit. You'll see things you can't see anywhere else in the world. You know, being a born and raised Manhattan guy, I have to tell you, I've lived in the same building since I'm six months old. I'm, I'm an Upper East Side guy, and during the pandemic, it was the first time I had a chance to really rediscover my neighborhood because I started to walk again. And, you know, as I walked down the street, at one point, I'm sure this is not going to come as a surprise to you, I was walking down the middle of the street. I was walking down the middle of Madison Avenue. I was walking down the middle of Fifth Avenue, and there were no cars. There was no traffic. It was as if they had yeah, evacuated yeah. the city. They didn't happen to bother to tell me. I'm so happy now that if I walk down the middle of Madison Avenue right now, I'd probably get hit by the bus. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want that to happen, Peter. But it's true that in those very difficult days of March and April of 2020, uh, the city felt like a ghost town. Even Times Square was almost totally empty. But boy, that seems like a distant memory now. I mean, honestly, the biggest issue with traffic right now is it's too bad. And we're trying to work on that. Congestion's a big problem. But uh, it does reflect uh, an economy that's coming back, tourism that's coming back, and, and more and more life on the streets. And uh, if you're thinking about coming, you want to be part of this. Come to New York City. Come to Manhattan. We'd love to have you here. Let's talk about a, a, a system that I've lived on since I'm probably seven years old, and that's the subways. Uh, you know, there's so many of my friends, even who live in New York, who say, oh, I don't want to take the subway. I take the subway all the time. Um, I've, I've never had a problem taking it, although we've seen the problems that it's had. Um, and I know that this is something that was near and dear to you when you were in the city council, and now, of course, being the yeah. borough president. Uh, yeah. How do we make it better? And, and you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of what they've done in Europe, with the platform, do the, the, the platform doors as opposed to the subway doors. Yes. I, yes. I, I hope yes. that can happen. Well, um, it is true that we've had some challenges on the subway, but 
Uh, we're making real progress. Ridership is coming back. We're now getting more than 3 million riders a day uh, just on the subways. And um, yes, actually, I've been fighting hard for what we call platform screen doors. That's what I'm talking so about, that, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that prevents you from falling or, or, or heaven forbid, being pushed or even just dropping your cell phone. And many other parts of the world have them. In fact, New York City has them at JFK Airport if you ride the air train. Um, but we won a big victory, actually. Uh, the MTA has now announced they're going to start installing platform screen doors at three subway stations. Uh, one is the Times Square station on the 7 line. Another is the 3rd Avenue station on the L. And uh, also a station, uh, the E-Train out in Queens. So um, we're going to start with that very important protection, which is a safety measure. Also, by the way, it keeps the trains running because um, if um, people drop trash on the tracks and it catches fire, well, that's actually the number one cause of delay. So this is uh, something good that's starting to happen in New York City subways. I'm really happy to hear it because it'll give people a sense of, of, of justified comfort and confidence, which, uh, which I think we need. Uh, bottom line that's is, exactly. though, you know, I'm a public school graduate. You're a public school guy. I, I have yeah. to say you have my utmost respect because you taught math. Uh, I still have, Mr. President, I still have dreams. I know, I take that back. I still have nightmares that I failed math <laughs> and that they're making me go back. Um, so you, you have my, my, my salute. And you not only taught I math. Promise I, won't, I promise I won't quiz you, Peter. You can, you can relax. It's all good. Well, listen, I, I took the test. Uh, this is a true story. Uh, when I was in, in junior high school in Manhattan, you know, you could apply to the specialized high schools, you know, the music and art and Bronx science and performing arts and Brooklyn Tech, et cetera. And I applied to Bronx science. And you'll appreciate this. Uh, here's, here's one of the questions. There were 200 questions on the test. And one of the questions, and you'll, you'll appreciate this because you'll remember it. You know, if a train leaves Philadelphia at 30 miles an hour heading east and another train heads west at 40 miles an hour, when will they intersect? You remember those questions, right? But wait. I sure do. Yeah, but wait. That wasn't the question on this test. This was the question on the test. If a train leaves Philadelphia at 30 miles an hour carrying 200 tons of super liquid-cooled hydrogen at minus 33 degrees centigrade, you can imagine how bad I was. And I'm sitting there. I'm on question 8 of 200, and I hear the proctor say, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. And I had my number two pencil. I realized this is hopeless and suicidal. I just went down and made little black circles on every answer that I just, at random, I knew nothing. Guess who got accepted to Bronx Science as a National Science Merit finalist? I'm guessing that would be you. You're right. And, <laughs> and then for the next three years, I had to be tutored in math every week. <laughs> well, you turned out okay. I did, so I did, I, I did. And we'll chalk that up as a victory for the public schools. Hey, but the real p victory for you, I mean, based on your history, you just didn't teach math. You taught it bilingually. You taught it in English and Spanish. Yes, that is true. I did um, part of my college in the University of Seville, Spain, physics department. So uh, my Spanish got better real fast. And uh, honestly, it's uh, it's a bit a big part of my political life because I've represented uh, predominantly Latino Spanish-speaking district in the city council for eight years. So. We are a multicultural city, a multilingual city. It's one of the most beautiful things about Manhattan and all of New York. And, of course, I learned my Spanish from the Dominicans and the Puerto Ricans in my neighborhood, right? So it's a different kind of Spanish, and the kind of Spanish that I learned would get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Not in Washington Heights. No, I get, I get that. It fit right in. I truly believe that if you have the opportunity, everybody should live in New York City 
in Manhattan at least for one year of their life. Uh, they may not have, Amen. And, and, and be- hopefully more. I know, but you know I say a minimum because for me, living in Manhattan for me made me streetwise globally. I may not know where to go, but I sure as hell knew where not to go and it allowed me to understand the energy, the pace, and to get answers quickly. There's a, there's a pace and an energy in Manhattan you don't find very many places in the world. Look, as Frank Sinatra taught us, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> but it really is just the global capital of culture, of art, of diversity, of music, of theater, of, of IT and biotech and so much more. Fashion and design, it's, it's uh, the place to be. It's, it's uh, never been more exciting. And everyone should come here to visit, to work, to live. Uh, you won't regret it. Now you just opened the door for me. Can they afford it? Because, you know, we see the cost of living. We see what it costs. I'm not, I'm not just talking about the inflation in the rest of the country. Manhattan is not an inexpensive place to live. Uh, you, you have to make adjustments. So I guess the question for you is, what lessons did you learn from the pandemic about this that as we're emerging from it now, you can apply? Well, look, we do have a challenge that the cost of housing is increasing, both to rent and to buy. And that does reflect that people believe in the future of this borough and the future of the city and that they want to be here. They want to own a piece of it. But for folks starting out, that is a challenge. I'm pushing really hard to build more housing in Manhattan, across the city, especially truly affordable housing so that people whether they are just getting started out, whether they're working class, whatever their income level, that they can afford to be here, to raise a family here, and to be part of our wonderful future. So uh, we have work to do, but um, new people are arriving every day, and people are visiting from all over the world. Uh, There's a way for everyone to enjoy all that Manhattan has to offer. Um, But we do have more work to do to make this uh, accessible long-term, and it's one of my top priorities as Manhattan Borough President. You know, I noticed the other day that an apartment, one apartment in Manhattan, an apartment went for like $67 million. I'm going, excuse me? And Well, don't, don't, don't scare your listeners because those are the, the ultra, ultra penthouse uh, in towers overlooking Central Park. Uh, but that does distort the market. Um, but there's, there, there's plenty of housing to be found for, for much less than that. Uh, and if you look hard, even, even at rates that middle class people can afford, but it's getting harder, and that's what we're fighting to fix. You know, I, I took a trip the other day along the West Side Highway from, like, 96th Street, you know, down to Chelsea, and I noticed so much available property along the river that was not, a, was not developed. Some of them were, like, you know, old piers that were not being used. I hope that that can be developed. And, and there are projects in the works all along the Hudson River on the West Side, uh, summer housing, summer office. Um, and uh, um, that's going to help create new opportunities for housing. Some of it will be deeply affordable, uh, but um, we need more. We need more housing. We need to build, and uh, we don't want to turn into one of those cities that refuses to build, and then you got to be a millionaire to live here. So uh, if you do the right thing, uh, we should create opportunities for everyone to live here, and that's what I'm fighting for. Okay, now i got to ask you the tough question. All right, I'm coming to New York. You're my buddy. I've never been to New York before. I'm talking Manhattan. Where are you going to take me for breakfast? Where are you taking me for lunch? And where are you taking me for dinner? And you're buying, by the way. <laughs> well, I think we'll do uh, breakfast at the Metro Diner on the Upper West Side at 99th Street and Broadway. And um, then we're going we're gonna to get lunch nearby there. We'll get a quick pizza at Mama's 2, best pizza in New York City on 104th Street. 
And then we're going to go uptown for dinner. We're going to go to Malecon to get amazing Dominican food right there on uh, 175th and Broadway. And in between, can we do a little bit of culture? Can we hit the Cloisters Museum in Fort Tryon Park? It is an amazing medieval castle that was uh, pieces that were disassembled in Europe and put back together uh, on the list of the Hudson River in Washington Heights. It's a spectacular setting, a beautiful medieval castle. And inside is the medieval art collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So that's going to be our day. What do you say, Peter? Are you up for it? I'm up for it, but I was surprised you didn't do anything in Soho. You didn't do anything in Broadway. You, you stayed uptown on me. Well, we're going to be walking, right? That's the best way to see the city. So uh, I didn't want to tire you out. We're going to keep it uptown. <laughs> okay, you got a deal. You got a deal. But what are we eating at the diner? What, what? Give me the breakfast item, your signature item. Well, if I can get bagels and locks, man, I'm starting off the day right. Okay, that's the, and by the way, I think you and I would both agree on this. You can order bagels anywhere else in the world, but the, nothing. It ain't New York City. It is not New York. <laughs> there are only two bagels in the world that I'll eat that I love. One is in Montreal because the Jewish community there, they figured out the bagels. They sure did. They did. And and then the other one, anywhere in, anywhere in New York, you're going to be okay with the bagels. I've been in other places. They give me a bagel. I, I just want to throw it as a Frisbee. I mean, <laughs> that's not a bagel. It's just a, round, it's just a round piece of bread. It's not it, the same. Exactly. Okay. We have great agreement on that. I'm going to take you up on that offer, okay? You got it, Peter. My thanks to Mark. When it comes to architectural and design innovation in the hotel and restaurant business, the one name that always seems to make a difference as well as have an impact, is David Rockwell. So who better to tell me about the science as well as the emotion of architecture and design, especially as we emerge from the pandemic? Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. David Rockwell, thank you for coming by. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So this particular building, I mean, it's it was a surprise to me, and I'm a New Yorker. Uh, you know, it just came out of nowhere. It was, it was a former parking garage, which they just built from scratch, really, and 27 stories. Yeah, it was one of those really fortunate opportunities where the developers had this small lot, and they wanted to... Literally a parking lot. Literally a parking lot. And, of course, my love affair with New York began with the theater district and um, I think it's one of the most unique places in the world. So I looked at this small lot and I knew they wanted to build a hotel and they approached me as an architect to say, well, what kind of hotel should we build here? And I realized it was a chance to create a project, a hotel for and about a very unique community. <clears throat> so it became a chance to make every decision from <clears throat> excuse me, from facade to 
artwork about celebrating the theatrical art form. You had a blank canvas. We had a blank canvas, and we had one of the most amazing creative collaborative industries in the world focus in this neighborhood that you, there's no transparency to. You have all these artists that contribute to theater, and all you see are the performers. And I realized if we could take people behind the scenes and invite as many theater makers as possible, this could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to, to celebrate theater. So we're, we're really, <clears throat> essentially, we're backstage. Exactly. You're backstage, you're invited into um, process. And I've always said, and I think you'll agree with this, that if you can understand and appreciate process, that's the only time you value the product. It's so true. And in, in, uh, for people who love theater, this neighborhood was full of watering holes where you'd go meet people in the community, theater community would hang out, and those had slowly disappeared. Uh, in this case, um, one thing to think about that's most unique is if you have a memory from a theater piece, if you remember a transition, that memory was created by 10 different professionals. Right, yeah, set designer, art director. Choreographer, choreographer music, yeah. tech director. So all of those voices have a, have a seat here in this hotel. And um, actually, the way we solved that was creating something called the Olio Collection, which is 350 pieces of art, some permanent, some rotating, set models, costume sketches, correspondence, fabric swatches, historical photographs that, that live together as a kind of living archive of the 100 years of, of Broadway. As long as you can put them in context. Exactly. Right? Because... Somebody's slippers, you know, I'm thinking of Judy Garland's slippers, you know, it's, it's, all those kinds of things can come together if you can tell the story. Well, one of the ways we did that was reach out to other co-curators. So Paul Taswell, um, Clint Ramos, Jules Fisher, Christine Jones, um, Patrick Pacheco, all amazing voices in the theater and students. We reached out to students from NYU. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned in context because... Part of the story is how do you keep things current? How do we keep adding new pieces? And uh, on the second floor, there's a vitrine with models. And every time I see someone look at the models, I realize that's not something an audience ever has any access to. That's really private communication between a designer and the creative team to show how things move. And here are those pieces that are ephemeral, get to be semi-permanent in a way that... Um, that, that I find thrilling. Even, you know, fashion designer sketches. Right. Right? You, don't, you see the dress, but you don't know how it got to be the dress. What was unexpected is the process went on for a long time, and the, the fact that the opening coincided with the reemergence of, of theater, um, in some ways... And that was uh, unplanned. Unplanned. I mean, God knows nothing. Over the last two years, we had <laughs> no idea what was going to happen. I was editing a book that I wrote called Drama, on how architecture and theater share the need of people, that without an audience there is nothing. And I was looking out over 28th Street with no people in the early stage of the pandemic, March 14th. I remember. And I realized that was the reinforcement that this city is not hardware, it's software, it's all the people, it's all the eccentric small places that you see. Um, so you had, the, to come to, you had to come to the conclusion, as painful as it might be, that your architecture means nothing. Without people. It is really true. Yeah. It's really true. And my very first images of the city when I came in as a kid and saw Fiddler on the Roof for my first Broadway show. Herschel uh, Bernardi. 
That's who I saw it at. I, I get it. Yeah, he was the second Tevye. Yeah, yeah, the first one was Zero Mustel. Yeah. Zero, Zero Mustel. And we actually have Boris Aronson's original rendering of Fiddler on the Roof on the second floor, which is incredible. Um, but when I came into the city, I was amazed at how people live vertically, that it is uh, the ground floor that gives New York its energy and its life. So as an architect... Well, it gives it energy and its life, and then if you're lucky, you get to go upstairs. You do. You, do, you know, you don't like in California. It's it's displayed in front of you. Here, you need to go inside and up. But also, there's a kind of melting pot where you rub up against many different kinds of people. The street is this great mixing chamber in New York. Um, but you have other things you can play with, right? It's not just it's not just the physical structure. It's the lighting. It's the music. It's the the actual the, the feel. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things, if you x-ray great architecture, I think you've got amazing choreographic patterns. If you think of places you love and you analyze them in terms of sequence, it's like a kind of dance. I think if you look at great entrances to buildings... It's the flow. It's the flow. It's the reveal that you have in theater. In theater, the curtain goes up and you're introduced to people, and that's the way buildings work as well. I've always felt that if you look at all architecture as theater then you can realize right away which buildings work and which don't, simply because if there's no flow, nobody goes. That is so true. Right? That is so I true. I mean, how many places have you seen, have I seen, restaurants, department stores, retail outlets that fail? They're always white elephants, right? They, they, this person has, hasn't succeeded in this location in 50 years. And then you realize why. But it's also, I think, a critical thing for architects to understand what the operational strategy is. In, in restaurants, I like to say, nothing makes an architect look better than warm food and good service. If the food doesn't arrive on time, and you do have something to say about that, lay out where the kitchen is. In the and case the of flow a, from the kitchen to the people. Yeah. You're going to laugh when you hear this. And, and, and every restaurateur hates me when I say this. I despise what I call the terrible two tops. I hate them, Right. Because the experience is supposed to be where I go and I have a great meal with somebody I want to have dinner with, where I'm not five inches away from somebody else's conversation, where I'm not rubbing elbows, I have enough space to think, I have enough space to actually take my time. And of course, that, that flies in the face of most restaurants trying to turn tables and, 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 and make a profit. I get it. So I'm going to tell you my secret. And the, I get so many angry letters when I do this. Every time I make a reservation for dinner, I always make a reservation for three. Because they can't give me a two. And Elijah never shows up. And if they want to charge me for more, I will pay it. I just want to have that space. Now, here's the irony, which you experienced during the pandemic. Restaurants had to do social distancing. They had to space the tables out. Yeah. It was actually, it was great. But we're now coming back. Well, you're, you're dipping your toe in a very provocative conversation. Go for uh, it. I mean, table layouts are the backbone of a restaurant. Yeah. If you x-ray a restaurant, it's a, a social construct made up of different table sizes. And, and so I think that the great restaurateurs we worked with, the Danny Meyer uh, recently, uh, Danny Garcia, uh, Nobu, the, the table layout is the... There's a science. There's a science to it. And, um, and what's interesting about tables for two is... What restaurants tend to do is prefer flexibility. So flexibility sometimes is in uh, a kind of conflict with intimacy and comfort. 
right? Think about banquettes. Banquettes feel great to walk into. They're permanent. They can't move. Two tops, you can move. You can make three two tops, a six top. Right. So um, I think there's a whole science to that. But there also are clues. There's ways, um, I believe, dining tables can create some center focus. Think about a candle at a table was the way you would create a little bit of a hearth. Um, but there's acoustical isolation, there's levels, there's soft materials, there's, um, there's many, many strategies we have as designers to address your concern that you don't want that one awful table. You don't want to be in Siberia. Now, I'll give you another pet peeve of mine, which doesn't re- reflect, I don't think, on the architecture, but could, depending on design. And that is, what is a restaurant reservation if not an implied contract? right? It's a promise, right? On both sides, right? You promise to keep the reservation and show up. They promise to have a table ready when you get there. What happens in so many restaurants is you get there on time, your table's not ready. So they say, why don't you go to the bar and buy your own drink, right? Well, Peter, maybe that's a day many people made reservations for three and only had two and they ran out of four. Don't you start with me, Rockwell. But, just, I'm just saying there could be a science to that. Well, well, actually, there could be, but I would disagree only because I didn't say I was overstaying my welcome at the table. That's what happened. But, yeah, it, it's a very annoying thing, and I think it's... But, but it, I want to get back to the, this one other thing about the design. Yeah. So now you're at the bar, Yeah. and maybe you buy a drink, and you buy your friend a drink, whatever that is, and then your table's ready. They want you to settle at the bar. I'm not leaving the restaurant. No, that's a bizarre thing. It's It's like... Is the bartender that worried that they're not going to get their tip? Build it into the price. Yeah. But don't make me go to my wallet because you made me go to the bar to, in, in the first place. Let me just float. Talk about flow. Let me flow to the table and feel better about it. Of course, if I was running the restaurant, which is why I don't run restaurants, I would be bankrupt. But if I was running the restaurant and my table was not ready for you, I would say, David, I'm buying you a drink. Right, and then we'll tell you when it's ready. It, it does go back to uh, the element of movement. Yeah. That if a, a restaurant yeah. is designed to embrace movement, and, and, and I think as an architect, the question I ask myself at the beginning of every project, a lot of research, looking at the, if it's, a, we did the Children's Hospital at Montefiore, right? You would see, think that's totally different than these other projects, but you still start out with... It's hospitality. What, but what's the main problem you're solving? You have to understand what does the doctor need, what does the patient need, what are the... The family uh, members need. What do the family members need? And one interesting that emerged in the Children's House at Montefiore is 70% of the kids who came there were repeat visitors. Lots of asthma conditions, one of the poorest sections of New York. And ceilings in hospitals are generally unexplored. And we realized most, that's the surface that most kids are looking at. And we did storytelling there. Uh, and worked with the doctors in a big art program to figure out how to solve that problem. You know, the Henry Ford Hospital in Dearborn, Michigan, had a similar challenge, right? With their patient flow, the number of days that most patients stayed, how patients approached the hospital, usually not in a positive way. You know what they did? They hired the Ritz-Carlton. And the Ritz-Carlton came and managed the the hospital. And you know what? It became a community center. Right. And and, it, it, and all of a sudden, its real purpose got expanded, and people felt better about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so it, now i got to give you my next pet peeve, right? And I, I said it earlier. I, I judge a hotel room by the bathroom. If the bathroom works, the hotel's spectacular, right? And 
And uh, but the one thing I've never understood. I mean, obviously, I get letters all the time from our our women listeners who are upset about the lighting in the bathroom. There's either not enough lighting for their their makeup and how they get ready in the morning, or and that by the way applies to men as well, or there's not enough space for I hate to say it for all the crap my wife takes with her when we when we travel. Right. So that's the first thing. But I have another one, and that is the flooring in the bathroom. Right. Every hotel seems to think that a definition of, of wealth and luxury has to have a, a, a slippery marble floor. It's so funny you said that. Uh, I do think there's, in, in the luxury hotel market, yeah. there's a bit of a competition of who can have the most expensive, slick marble floor. And I agree with you. It's not, spending that money doesn't signal luxury or doesn't signal thought. It signals orthopedic surgery. But the bathroom yeah. is an interesting um, challenge because yeah. th- there's no other building type where someone's spending 24 hours judging exactly where the light switch is and can you reach the end table. So it's the reason why in hotels we do mock-up rooms and spend weeks and months kind of getting it right. The part about the size sometimes is just the reality of the, of the project. Here at the Civilian, these are very small hotel rooms. I don't know if you've been to them. Yeah. Every detail is thought out um, from the look of the place and the artwork and the bathrooms um, there are one or two elements that have a sense of luxury and specificity and not generic, driving towards authenticity that solve the problems you want. And I think lighting is the single biggest issue yeah. in a bathroom. Um, and then everything else is just a matter of taking that little, it's like a sketch project as an architecture student because the amount of space is fixed. And within that, what can you do with it? What right. can you do with it? Yeah. Although I will tell you, I've learned my lesson. Whenever I come out of a, of a shower in a bathroom that's got marble floor, I always lean forward. Because you've just been on a floor with soap, your feet are slippery, the floor is slippery, I don't want to crack my skull. What if you're in one of those hotels where they added the bathtub so it's higher than the floor, oh, yeah. so you step out? Oh my God, that's, that's a, an acrobatic challenge. So I have to tell you, we have a Broadway show in previews right now that we designed the sets for called Take Me Out. An amazing. I know the baseball field, yeah. But it has uh, it has a, a demand for showers, so lots of water on stage with acting happening right after that. So maybe all the bathroom experience I had paid off <laughs> in figuring out how to do that. Any accidents? No. Okay, good. Nobody's slipping. Nobody's slipping. I appreciate that. My thanks to David. One of the great, often hidden gems of Manhattan is how many special and often unknown great libraries are in the borough. Now, I'm not talking about the New York Public Library branches. I love those, and I essentially grew up in one in my neighborhood. I'm talking about the specialized libraries. And Dr. Valerie Paley runs one, the Patricia Klingenstein Library at the New York Historical Society. Talk about a find. In fact, let's talk. Dr. Valerie Paley. Nice to see you. So, you know, I, I spent so much of my time in the library, and I still have my card, and I still, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think you even need the card anymore the way I used to have the card, but I used to have it stamped on my, you know, and that's where I spent so much of my time because it was my, my one place of quiet that I could go hang out. You know, this is way before cell phones. It was just quiet anyway. But your library is a special place because it's located inside the oldest museum in New York. That's correct. New York Historical Society began in 1804 as the first museum in the city. And it was a museum and library, which it still is, but it's somewhat separated. The library is one of the oldest research libraries in the United States. And uh, the holdings are 
unbelievable. We have stuff like uh, the Louisiana Purchase, the signed uh, document by Napoleon. We have. Okay, I have to ask a silly question. How did that get into a New York library? <laughs> this is an interesting thing. Back in the you know the the founding era, the the founders of the New York Historical Society were collecting everything pertaining to. You know, the founding of the nation, uh, the European travel, uh, everything, uh, exploration. And uh, one of our donors just had it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a, a fanatic when it comes to maps and, and map making. And, of course, in New York, it was the Dutch who right. drew all those first maps, right. which confused a lot of people, actually, because they, they would mistake a V for an R. Or, 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 you know, it, it, was, and it was interesting the way those pronunciations stayed mm -hmm. simply all those years. Mm -hmm. But... The collection that you have, okay, let's start with the Louisiana Purchase. That's crazy enough. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, so other surprises? Uh, oh, uh, fans of Hamilton, the musical, uh, would be pleased to know that the original uh, letters that were exchanged between Hamilton and Burr leading up to their duel, we have those. You, they were they were pre-dual letters? Pre-dual letters. It's like, you fool, <laughs> you despicable <laughs> creature, and uh, back and forth. You ignorant slut. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and the, leading up to the duel. And it's, uh, there they are, right, you know, in their hand. And as a historical society, I mean, your collections, I'm sure just your storage vaults must be crazy. They are crazy, and as a matter of fact, we are building, this is one of the newest museums, one of the oldest museums building a new space uh, right there on Central Park West. Now, I grew up going to the Metropolitan Museum, of course, uh, on, on 81st and 5th, and of course, there's the Guggenheim on 89th, there's the Museum of Moderato on 53rd, right, all these Manhattan museums. Uh, there's also a Museum of the City of New York, a little un, un, uptown. Oh, on the east side. On the east side, right. And, and there's even a tenement museum. That's right, downtown. Right, so how would you say your museum is different? Uh, what it does is it expresses the history of the nation through the particular vantage point, the lens, if you will, of New York City and state. So, uh, well, consider the fact we were the first capital in a Exactly, sense. exactly. Uh, as a matter of fact, speaking of the first capital, we have the balustrade. It's sort of like a piece of the fence that was at Federal Hall, behind which Washington stood and waved to the crowds after he took the oath of office. So. Well, close to where I live, and there are two of them in Manhattan that I know of, there's the Park Avenue Armory on 67th, I think, yeah. and then there's the one on 94th. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, that's where the police used to stable their horses. Right, right. right? Yeah. And, and then they'd go out in the morning and they'd go up to like Fifth Avenue and 90th, they'd go through the park and the reservoir. And, right. and of course, anytime you walked by there, it was the in, you know inescapable aura mm -hmm. and odor <laughs> of horses. Uh, and yet, that building itself has such a great history. Yes. I mean, it, it goes back to Washington. It goes crazy that way. Yes, yeah, so a lot of forts and other such things. Well, you can still see the, the turrets. Yeah, it's, yeah, no, it's extraordinary. I know. New York is, is strange that way because it's, it's like constantly being reinvented and rebuilt, but there's sometimes these vestiges of the past that you can see. Now, you've been with, with, with the historical side for quite a while before you got the appointment to the library. Mm -hmm. What's the one thing in your collection that surprises you? Oh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Uh, do you know, uh, what I find actually fascinating is, is uh, just the weird ephemera that we have. There's not just one thing. There's so many things. Like, for example, the draft riots of 1863, the largest civil disturbance in American history. We have the, uh, it, was, it happened because they were uh, drawing names for, to, 
the, for the draft of the Civil War, and a lot of you can buy your way out of the draft. A lot of the poor people were really upset about that, and so these riots ensued. We have the draft wheel from that uh, civil wow. disturbance, which is kind of cool. The draft we, wheel. We have a loser. <laughs> we have a lot of losers. It wow. was. It was. You know, but these things that sort of speak to a moment in the past that you read about in history books, and then when you see this sort of evidence of what was there. We have stuff from 9-11 we started collecting on, you know, the week after that disaster downtown. So all of these things that just speak to a moment in the past. And you had these critical junctures in the history of a city, uh, in the country, but for so many years what was happening in the city was the country. That's right. That's right. That's right. And well, we are New Yorkers, right? I'm a New Yorker yes. as well. So we're very New York centric in our in our perspective. When That's right. It all starts here. You know uh, that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, look, you are a born and raised New Yorker, I so you, you have to defend that. Well, that's easy to defend, right? (laughs) We talk about the collection of the society, but what about the library? Well, I mean, it's all part of the same collection, really, library and museum collection. The library is is an extraordinary treasure trove. We have bits of ephemera, like stuff that might have been thrown away in the 19th and 18th century, like business cards or, you know, patent medicine bottle labels and stuff like that. And by the way, if they ever open a a museum of business cards, I can be one of the donors. Okay, good. (laughs) I've kept everyone. And you know what I do? I, I keep business cards from 30 years ago, and then all of a sudden I'll meet somebody again who's had five other jobs since and I present them with their old business card. That's, that's quite a trick. Which some people are in serious <laughs> denial about, but it's kind of fun to do it. But you know, we have business cards from the 18th century, for example, but that's not even, you know, that's nothing compared to some of the old maps. We have McKim, Mead and White, the great architecture firm. Most of their uh, architectural drawings, like the original architectural drawings for Penn Station, for example. The uh, original Penn Station that yeah. they, store, they sadly tore down. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, stuff like that. Robert Caro, his papers we recently acquired. Uh, By the way, if you want to learn about New York, it is required reading The Power Broker. It's a big book. It's a heavy book. It's, it's, it's a page wanna, turner, though. It's, it is. Robert Moses. And if you want to know about the Dodgers and why they left Brooklyn, read that book. Because the, that's right. Walter, <laughs> right. Walter O'Malley wanted to build a stadium uh, in Queens. And, Robert, and, and, and uh, the owner of the Dodgers. And Robert Moses said, not going to happen. See ya. I decide what gets built in New York. And O'Malley said, if you feel that way about it, we're leaving. He went out to LA. And here's the irony. Where is that stadium today? It's City Field. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same location that Walter O'Malley wanted. That's so funny. I know, I know. But all that stuff is, is in the library. The, yeah, well, his papers, yeah. uh, Robert Caro's papers, at, you know, having to do with that book, but also his books on Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson. Johnson. Exactly. I mean, and he's still, by the way, he's not done yet. No. He's still working on another volume of the LBJ story. Exactly. It's extraordinary. He is very prolific. And so we have those papers. We have a little exhibit about his process. Um, By the way, his process will be a lesson for all of us. Absolutely. It's longhand. It's it's manual typewriter. It's it's fastidious. It's it's awe-inspiring because as a writer myself... I, I, you have to just say, wow, talk about dedication. Right, well, then you have to come see the exhibit then. Well, I'm going to come <laughs> see, the see the exhibit. Or see the papers too, which we're still processing. Huge, huge archive, which we're still in the process. How much new stuff do you get all the time? We get new stuff all the time. And it's it's we can't, we can't keep up. Uh, there's just uh, documents, papers, um, drawings, prints, photographs. We have a lot of... Many, you know, thousands of photographs of the building of the uh, subway system in New York City, uh, for example. They're just breathtaking. And by the way, there are still in New York a couple of abandoned subway stations 
that every once in a while you can go visit them. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable yeah. the work that went in there. Yeah. And as they rebuilt some of the subway stuff in terms of the design, in terms of the tile work, um, they've done a pretty good job. Oh, definitely. The Absolutely. Second Avenue subway now is so cool. It is so cool. It's really beautiful. I know. But you can see what it looked like when they were just digging the trenches for uh, for the subway. And this is you know, 1904. You know, you, you look at the engineering. of You talk about the trenches. How did they do the, the Lincoln Tunnel? How did they do the Holland Tunnel? Oh. What was the engineering involved in that? Unbelievable. Uh, and then the subway itself. Because, you know, we were recently in Panama. And how many people died just trying to big build the, the Panama Canal, mm-hmm. and you weren't going under anything at that point. You're just digging. Mm-hmm. This is this is different. You're going under. Yeah, yeah. you can't make mistakes. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, tell me more about this. So how how long is it open every day? Uh, our hours are I think uh, ten to six. Okay. Uh, we are free to the public on Fridays. There you um, go. That's the secret we're waiting for. <laughs> Friday nights, pay as you wish. Yeah. Uh, but the library is free uh, with an appointment. So make an appointment. Go to the library. Mm-hmm, you can. That's right. Yeah. And you still have to be quiet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> What's the one thing you want in the library that you haven't been able to? That's a hard question. I think we have just about everything. <laughs> you know, we also have, I didn't tell you, the uh, terms of surrender from Civil War. You know, they were, it was done But in, the surrender wasn't here. No, it was from uh, Appomattox Courthouse. Yeah, we've got that. Ulysses S. Grant's, sig- uh, you know, handwriting. Well, Ulysses S. Grant was from New York. That's true. That's true. In fact, he's still buried here. Uh-huh. Yeah, in Grant's tomb. <laughs> he was buried in Grant's tomb. <laughs> I, I know. By the way, you should go up there... His biography is an amazing biography to read. Yes. And, and tells the story not just of, of a general in the war, but also New York. Right. Well, Ron, Ron Chernow's biography. Ron Chernow. And Ron works in our library, too. Ron Chernow, the yeah. same guy who did Hamilton. That's right. And he did a lot of the research in, in the Patricia D. Klingenstein Library for, for his books. My thanks to Dr. Paley, to David Rockwell, and to Mark Levine. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the other breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit Peter Greenberg. Greenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com/slash survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.